Good morning, church family. Good to be, get, be together again, to gather and to be equipped for the work God has called us to do, and he has, amen. He's called each one of us. He's gifted each one of us. You've heard me say before that our testimony is not for us. Our testimony is for everyone else, right? And our gifts, the, God, the gifts that God has equipped us with, our gifts are not for us. They're to be shared and they're to bring him glory, amen? Romans 8, 28, most of us are familiar. And let me read it again. And we know, we know, we're sure of. It's a promise. We can take it to the bank. We know, not it may be true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Not some, not that they may, but all things will work together for those who are called according to this, his purpose. The qualifier isn't experience. The qualifier isn't education. The qualifier isn't your status in society. The qualifier is simply for those who love God. And if I said, who loves God, we'd all say, yes, we love God. But love's more than a, a thought or a feeling, right? Love is an action. And so love is living out Matthew 6, together. Seek first his kingdom and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, have your priorities in order. Put first things first, because we're all building a kingdom. But some of us are building our own kingdom. Some of us are still our own kings. And so, you know why most of the time in the Bible, we know that wealth, money is morally neutral. It's just a tool. But when wealth is presented in the Bible, in almost every instance, it's presented as an obstacle to salvation. It's presented as a hindrance to the gospel. Not because money's bad, but because of the way we view it. Because our, our, we, we tend to rest, our identity becomes in what we have or our position in society, and it increases the likelihood of pride. Money's not the problem. Pride is the problem. And people, the most, the most misquoted scripture is money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. So money's morally neutral, but what we as a society and really people throughout the world tend to do is they tend to make it an idol. And so you see people differently if they have money or if they have status in society. But here's the thing. Jesus played favorites. Jesus had a preference. And you know what his preference was toward? The outcasts and the poor, the marginalized the people that most respectable people would go out of their way to avoid. Jesus focused his ministry on those people. Matthew 9, starting in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is this religious man doing in that kind of company? Those are the worst of the worst. What kind of guy is this that you follow? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, everyone needs Jesus. The Pharisees were in no less need of Jesus. The Pharisees knew the right things. They had correct theology, but they missed it because they were prideful, because they thought it was about what they could accomplish. And so Jesus says, no, 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 you righteous? I didn't come for you. You're righteous on your own merit. You don't need me. I come for those who are sinners, for those who are sick. Jesus understood that we all need forgiveness, but some of us don't think we do. See, the problem is some people think they're good enough on their own merits because of what they have or what they've done or who they know or who they are in society. But 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I made this comment a few weeks ago while I was preaching and it's became the title of the sermon and really the theme of what we're going to talk about. So the title of the message is, It is not about our past. It is about our pride. It's not about our past. I don't know about you. I get a little bit of a past. Maybe I'm the only one in the room. A little bit. Right? It's not about that. Your past isn't going to stop you from getting into heaven. Jesus is like, I came... For those just like you. I came for those who are broken and hurting and understand they need forgiveness. So, Father, would you do what only you can do now? Father, would you capture our hearts only to liberate us? Would you meet us where we are? Would you surround us with your great love, God? Would you convict us where we needed conviction? Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' name, amen. Someone shared with me a sermon the other day by Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is probably one of my favorite pastors to listen to, and it doesn't hurt that he has a really cool Scottish accent. So just for that alone, he's easy to listen to. But he imagined a scenario where the thief on the cross gets to heaven, and, and the angels sort of check him in and says, uh, Sir, you know, are you familiar with the doctrine of, of salvation? Said, no, I don't even know what that is. Well, sir, have, I mean, what church did you attend? Were you, were you a part of a church? No, never part of a church. Sir, do you know the scriptures, sir? No, I, you know, I don't. I'm going to have to check with the supervisor. I don't, I don't know how you're here. I mean, you don't, you don't know anything. You know, do you, like, what makes you think you can come here? To which the man replied, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. We are all here. Because the man on the middle cross interrupted our lives and told us we could come. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we know. Now, theology is important. I'll go to school for the rest of my life. I'm in school now. Doctrine and theology is important because we need to know the truth about God, about his word, about who he is, so we can counter against the lies of the enemy, the world. That's important stuff. But it's also important to know that the Pharisees had correct theology, but their hearts were far from God. They were cold. 
A.W. Tozer said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. See, church, it's easy for us to forget that we're not saved because of what we know and what we've done or who we think we are. We're saved because we were rescued by Jesus. I was at a a funeral uh, on Thursday. I I spoke at a a funeral, and... um, and I shared a couple of things, and, and I, I just, they, I continued to meditate on them after the, the, the funeral. And I got a sense when I was leaving the funeral, and I had my, my sermon, and I got a sense that the Lord was saying, you know, I think you need to develop that idea more. And for kind of a second, I went, oh, really, Lord? Come on. I'm, I'm done. And then immediately, I was like, all right, I got it. And so this is, these are the, this is the, the scripture. This is the idea how it came together. Some of you probably know what you've heard is the shortest verse of Scripture, right? John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in all the Bible. If you like trivia, here's some trivia for you. It's actually not the shortest verse of the Bible in the original Greek. It is the shortest verse of the Bible in English. It has 16 letters. But the shortest verse of the Bible in the original Greek is actually 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which has only 14 letters and reads, Rejoice always. So if anyone ever asks you the shortest verse of the Bible, you can come with that piece of trivia. A little bonus. Rejoice always. It's another sermon for another day, right? But this morning I want to look particularly at the two times in the Bible it mentions Jesus wept. Now we know he, he, pri- he cried and he prayed regularly. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 or 7 talks about that, that Jesus would, pr- would pray and cry. We know he was a man acquainted with grief. So we know Jesus cried more than twice, but there are only two specific times in the Bible where it mentions Jesus weeping. And the first, as I just said, is John eleven thirty five. And now I'm going to read that. But the interesting thing there is, you know, we might ask the question, why would you weep for your friend who had died knowing you're going to bring him back from the dead? Like you think, you know, you just show up, everybody's crying, and you're like, guys, don't be sad. I got this. But we're going to see what the text says. John 11, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. See, Jesus wept. Those two words tell us an awful lot about God. That he wept because he entered into the human experience, because he felt sorrow, because he mourned with those who who mourned. Because when he arrived on the scene, the people he loved were sad. They were grieving. I don't know about you, but I have kids. My littlest, my daughter's 10, she plays this online game, Roblox, Roblox, I don't know. And every now and then somebody like somehow steals her, her guy. I don't even know what it is, but she gets very sad. Now, I don't know what that is. All I know is it's a game that I probably spent too much money on for her. But when she's sad, when she comes to me and she's crying, it breaks my heart. I'm sad. Not because of the source of her sadness, but because I love her, 
Because what breaks her heart breaks my heart. And you know what we forget, church, in our attempt to be our own kings and to do our own stuff? That we're his children. That we're called to come to him like a child, dependent, humbled, in awe. We forget that God loves us like children, unconditionally. The reason for Jesus weeping is because he loves us and because it's a public testimony to his love. See, in the text it says, see, see his crying, see his weeping, see how much he loved him. And next we'll look at Luke 19, the second time in the Bible Jesus wept. We mentioned this on Palm Sunday. It's not the typical focus on Palm Sunday because when you hear a Palm Sunday service, you hear about the palm branches and you hear about the, the cult and you hear about Hosanna and the highest and the celebration and Jesus entering into Jerusalem and, and that's all there. And it's a celebration. And that's a piece of it. But man, every time I preach, and I've preached this every Palm Sunday for the last few years, I see something else there. And I see it in Luke 19. We're going to begin in verse 38. It says, When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. I don't want to read too much into that now, but it's important to note that it doesn't say they praised Jesus for who he was. It says they praised Jesus for the miracles they had seen. Some people are only around for the bread and the fish. Jesus feeds them still to bring their attention to their greater need. So don't walk away just after the bread and the fish because that's not the miracle. That's nothing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, verse 40, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then verse 41, here it is. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The reason that Jesus wept is the same reason that Jesus wept in John 11 is because he loves us. And because he knows that our denying him that are not recognizing and receiving who he is and why he came will lead to our destruction, will lead to restlessness and pain, the things he came to rescue us from, and he weeps because we miss who he is and we miss why he came. I think we just don't understand the love of God very well. I understand that the world has this skewed view of who God is. Like that he's sort of trying to keep us from all the fun stuff. That he doesn't want what's best for us. I understand that the world thinks that. It's amazing what you hear people say, even experts on TV about the Bible or about Christians, and you just go, where do you, you, know, where do you come up with this stuff? Like Tim Keller once said, ask people why they don't believe in God, and then you'll quickly find out you don't believe in that God either. People have this misconception of who God is. 
But Paul says this, Romans 8, 38. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul's going, if you're not sure of God's love, look at the cross. If you question whether or not he wants what's best for you, look at the cross. See, the Jews wanted somebody who was going to rescue them from their situation, their circumstances. That's often what we want. And in God's grace and mercy, often he does. But he uses our circumstance to bring our attention to our condition. He says, "I'll, I'll, I'll meet this need, but I want you to see your deeper need. Understanding the love of Christ means we understand we're forgiven much. And see, if you understand you're forgiven much, you can't help but be grateful and you can't help but love much. How? How could we be prideful when we needed rescue and somebody rescued us despite ourselves? When we were unlovable. And I don't know about you, but I was unlovable. And you, all of you, are unlovable too. But you know what? God loves us anyway. Because it's not about us. It's all about him. Luke 7.47 says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love. And a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. See, if you're forgiven much, you love much. And the instance there, this was the woman who interrupted. Jesus is dining, this Pharisee is around, and, Jesus, and this woman hears that Jesus is there, and she doesn't care that she's an outcast. She doesn't care what people are going to say. She doesn't care that what she's doing is so inappropriate, but she just heard Jesus is there, and I need to be forgiven, and I need to get to Jesus. And we're so worried what people will think and what people, and if the time is right, And this woman was so grateful that she poured out all her perfume on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Pouring out her perfume was symbolic. That meant as a prostitute, she was leaving her old life behind. That had cost a lot of money. She would use that to attract. So that was was symbol like my old old life is gone. I'm going to give it all to you. I don't care what people say about me. I don't care my reputation. I just need to get to Jesus. Our past is never going to get in the way. It's only our pride. John chapter 4, our main text this morning. says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you look on a map, you see it is a direct route. But what the scriptures don't tell you is that no Jew took that route because they were so bigoted and they had such hatred for the Samaritans that they would go way out of their way to avoid them. How many times do we go way out of our way to avoid that group of people? Those people whatever category, whatever classification you want. We go out of our way. All the Jews went out of their way. They took a different route. They passed, uh, they crossed the Jordan and passed through Perea instead, totally around if you look at a map. 
I don't think when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria that that was a geographic reference. I think Jesus had to go through Samaria because he's all-knowing and he had a divine appointment. I think Jesus had to go through Samaria because he knew at that moment that woman would be there. And I'm glad that Jesus met me in my Samaria. I'm glad that even when I should have been avoided, when people should have avoided me, that Jesus met me in that place. See, sometimes Jesus interrupts our lives when we least expect it. When we're just going about our mundane chores, just have a few things we need to get done. Verse five says, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. High noon in Jerusalem, a very hot day. This is the same well Jacob gave his favorite son Joseph. It's there today. You can see it. It's about 96 feet deep. It's a real well, real place, real stuff. And here's Jesus, and he's sitting there, and he's waiting because he has an appointment with this woman who's traveling in the worst part of the day, and she's got a clay pot that she's carrying, and it's heavy, and it's really, really hot, and she's alone. And she's alone because she's an outcast. She's alone because of her reputation. She's carrying her pot in the, in the hottest part of the day, and she's alone. Because the respectable women would have gotten their water earlier in the cool of the day. But she couldn't go there with them or she'd be ridiculed and made to feel worse than she already felt. And so she was alone. And as heavy as that clay pot was, that wasn't the heaviest thing she was carrying. She was carrying a burden of shame and of guilt, of feeling like there was no hope for her because of her past. Because the enemy isolates us, right? Whether our behavior isolates us or oftentimes our own fear, our own feeling less than, our own lack of any kind of identity causes us to isolate, to withdraw. And so the very thing we need, which is community, is the very thing we're robbed of. And we're increasingly alone. And so here's this woman making her way to a place and a time where nobody was going to be there so she could get her water and sneak back away. But Jesus. But Jesus had other plans. He always does, doesn't he? A woman from Samaria, verse 7, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Verse 14 says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. See, Jesus promised us to meet our needs, and, and he'll meet our physical needs on occasion, right? We pray, we get answered to prayer. But the invitation, what Jesus extended was much more than just water. It was living water. And Jesus, and I don't want to get too buried in the weeds here, but if you look back in, De- in Deuteronomy, when the kingdom split, the Samaritans had their own temple, their own, you know, their own capital. They were trying to compete with Jerusalem. They had their own religious system. And so for a minute there, she she sort of goes, well, look, we got the system here. And we're going to see that in a minute in the dialogue. And so Jesus corrects her religious system. And he meets her where she is, but we're going to see what he says. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. She had been married five times. The man she was living with now wasn't her husband. Don't forget, as she approached that well, she had a burden. She had her shame and her guilt. There's a, few, there's a few places in Scripture where I just love the text, and like, you know, the, the Bible says, be prepared in season and out of season. So there's, there's a few places in Scripture where I could just preach a sermon. I could just show up somewhere and preach from those texts. And one of them is in Mark with a rich young ruler. And there's so much there, and I love it. But I love when it says, Jesus looked at him and had a great love for him. And it says, and the man went away sad because he had great wealth. And I wonder how many times in my life did Jesus look at me and love me? And I walked away because I thought I was going to find something somewhere. And it's interesting that it says the man went away sad because deep down inside, we know. We know when we're going to things that may be f- familiar but will never fulfill us. And to go away sad every time we choose something other than him. The clay pot was heavy, but the heavier burden was in her soul. And in this gentle conversation, Jesus still distinguishes right from wrong. We've said before, God loves you right where you are. He loves you, but he loves us so much he doesn't want to leave us right where we are. And it is not loving to not correct somebody, to not guide them in the right direction. If they're on a path to destruction and you don't want to hurt their feelings and you don't say anything to them, now there's a way to say it. There's the person to say it. So you say it in love, but it is a lack of love. It is the opposite of love not to speak helpful truth to somebody. In fact, it is self-love that causes us not to do that because we would rather not have an uncomfortable interaction and so we'll let people die in their sin. 
The woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is where she goes to what she knows. Our father worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. They had competing systems. You worship what you do not know, Jesus said. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See, she had some knowledge. She's had some understanding. She had some experience with religion. But she hadn't encountered Jesus yet. And some people go to church week after week after week, and they have some experience with religion. And they know some things about Jesus, but they haven't really recognized him. They don't really know who he is. I have a pastor friend of mine, and he says, there are some people who've been a Christian for 50 years, and there's some people that have been a Christian for a year 50 times over. Nothing changes. There's no scenario in the Bible in which you receive facts and then you walk away, and then that you encounter Jesus and you walk away unchanged. Everywhere in the Bible where you receive the truth of who Jesus is, it changes you drastically and forever. It's messy. David's life was messy. Joseph's life was messy. Peter's life was messy. Paul's life was messy. My life is messy. But it's progress. Sometimes it's slow. But some of you, sometimes some of us, you're not even in the game. I mean, you're, sh- you're showing up and you're watching from the sidelines, but you're not even playing the game. I love you so much, I'm going to tell you the truth. She expresses some faith, but she misses who Jesus really is. She'd been exposed to religion, but now she meets Jesus. And when he reveals himself, she believes. See, Jesus says salvation is through himself alone. He's the Messiah. And through his work on the cross, he extends salvation to all who receive this truth. Verse 27 says, Then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ?" They went out of the town and were coming to him. See, Jesus had crossed all kinds of boundaries. First of all, he went there at the time and place where nobody went there. And then he waited. And then she was a woman, but he talked to her anyway. And then she was a Samaritan, but he talked to her anyway. And then she was in sin, but he talked to her anyway. Because Jesus will overcome all the worldly stuff to grab us, to capture our heart, to interrupt our lives. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. Take care of the physical stuff. I know you're doing ministry, but take a minute and eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Don't you see there are four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. 
so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. She's like, Jesus said, I've done it all, but I'm asking you to be obedient in response. And then in verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because your testimony, her testimony, my testimony isn't for us. It's for other people. And the testimony isn't, you know, 30 minutes of talking about you and two minutes of talking about God. The testimony is all about him. It's all about what he's done. And I've been, I'm, I've, been, I'm, I've been a program. I'm a teen challenge guy. And you hear people give their testimonies. It's like nobody, like, I get it. You know, you're, you're the worst guy ever, right? I know. Everybody in Teen Challenge, everybody used to cut hair too. Everybody says they cut hair. Just because you trim your parents' hedges, you're not a barber. You can't cut hair. Everybody was a gangster. Everybody, you know. But he had a testimony. Every time they'd say it, it would get worse. We'd be like, is that a testimony or a testifony? What is that like? You're in rehab trying to impress people with your background? Nobody cares. It's all about him. It's not about us. Our testimony is we're a mess, we're a mess, we're a mess. We met Jesus. We're still a mess, but we're a beautiful mess, and he's making us more like him. That's our testimony. And so she tells everybody, because when you are forgiven, when you've met him and, and his grace and mercy has overcome your sin, then you can't help but tell everybody. See, if you get good news, you want to share the good news, unless you don't believe it's true or unless you don't think it's good news. But you want to tell everybody. You ever meet somebody in love, especially newly in love? It's almost nauseating. Oh, it's the best. It's just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Seriously. Right? But you can't help but tell people because you're in love. We're supposed to be in love with Jesus. They're supposed to be deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. And the woman said, he told me everything I ever did. And so I love this part. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Jesus, we've heard about you. Come be with us now. It wasn't just enough. You can hear somebody else's testimony and that could be like, you know, I want to learn. I want to read a Bible. I want to learn more about Jesus. I want to come to church. Good. And then you know what? You're going to be invited into an experience. And then it says this, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of just what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We have tasted and seen on our own that the Lord is good. See, my testimony has nothing to do with me. And, and when you hear a testimony, it should point you to God. You shouldn't say, oh, it's amazing what God did. You know how many times people told me it's amazing what God did in your life, and then they're like, mope away. Like, what do, you, what do you think it has to do with me? Hello? Why don't you let him do it in your life? It's not your past. It's your pride. If you leave here this morning, and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to know that there are burdens in this room, the shame and guilt and brokenness, and there's those burdens. And that some of you are going to walk through those doors, and you're going to carry them right out with you. And it has nothing to do with your past. It has everything to do with your pride. Maybe it's self-loathing. Maybe you think you deserve it. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's all from the enemy. God doesn't save you because you're good. He saves you because he's good. Amen. 
If we told this story in a more contemporary language, it would be about a skid row prostitute, maybe a drug abuser. People said, oh, she's, you know, don't even talk to her. She can't be trusted. And she becomes a child of God, and she immediately becomes an evangelist. And she's going to tell everybody about this Jesus who met her when nobody else would meet her and who loved her enough to speak life. That should change everything, church. Ask the worship team to come up. See, the Samaritan woman left her clay water pot at the well as Jesus filled her life with living water. She didn't even, she didn't even do the thing she went to do. She went to get water. She didn't get water. She didn't get what she needed to get done, done. But God got what he needed to get done, done that day. And she's just like, forgot all about it. I don't even remember what I was there for. Because when God interrupts your life, it changes everything. And if we're grateful for what he's done in our lives, we tell other people. The church isn't a place we come. It's a people we are. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And let's be honest. I think a lot of times our churches are filled with people who've maybe confessed their mouth, but they've never believed in their heart. The Bible is filled with people who mess up, but they keep seeking after Jesus. They keep asking his forgiveness for his mercy and grace because life is messy. But his love displayed on the cross, showed to us by his word and his spirit, changes everything. It frees us from our past and it puts us on mission. It's about both being and doing. It's a change of identity that comes with a change of allegiance that we would build his kingdom. And see, what breaks Jesus' heart when we don't know who he is is that he knows that nothing is gonna fulfill. C.S. Lewis made this observation. He said, our problem is that we are half-hearted creatures and we fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Our problem is that we are far too easily pleased. And so we go about wholly unsatisfied. And we exchange little moments of pleasure for lasting peace in Jesus. And our pride gets in the way. Our priorities remain off. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've, they've sought out for themselves things that'll never fill, that'll never satisfy. And so Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. Do what I said. There's no scenario in which people in the Bible encountered Christ and didn't live for him. It was messy. They messed up. They denied him. But they repented. Don't let, don't let your past, don't let your pride get in the way of what God wants to do in your life. The Great Commission, his last command to us before ascending into heaven is this. And it's why we exist as a church. 
It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And I love this. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some of them didn't really know. Some of them didn't have perfect faith. Some of them wasn't sure, but he still spoke to them. If you're here, he's speaking to each one of us. And Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That's not for pastors. That's not for paid leaders. That's for Christians. That's for every one of us that has been rescued and redeemed by Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, tell people about the freedom you found. We're having signs printed up. And I said it the other day, and then as the pastors, you know, I sort of said it off the cuff preaching. We talked more about it. I think we have a slide, and we're going to leave it up at the end of the service as well. But as we leave those two exits, there's going to be signs that say, now go be the church. Stand as we worship together.